I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. This is an extra, a Democracy Sausage extra that we like to do each week. And it's my very great pleasure today to be uh, welcoming to Democracy Sausage Extra, done remotely, of course, as just about everything is now uh, as a result of the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Um, from Melbourne, Andrew Weir. Now, Andrew Weir is the author of a new book called Solved, How Other Countries have cracked the world's biggest problems and how we can too. So it's a it's an ambitious work and a wonderful read, and I'm really glad that Andrew Weir is joining us now to talk about some of those public policy problems. Real pleasure, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. It's it's terrific to have you there. Let's start um, uh, first just about yourself, if we can, just so that people who who don't know you can get a bit of a sense of of your background and and who you are. You you've uh, you, you quoted on the back cover as uh, being a policymaker, someone with degrees in law, politics, and economics. What does that actually mean, a policymaker? Yeah, well, I've worked in mostly for state government for the past uh, twenty years or so in in a range of uh, range of policy roles, essentially across a whole bunch of portfolios. I've also been a ministerial advisor for a couple of years as well in between. Um, and uh, yeah, so public policy, I guess, is my is the essence of what I'm passionate about, what I do, uh, and the ability to influence government policy. Yeah, along with your. Um uh, your, your obviously extensive academic qualifications. You've been in a range of portfolios, and I, su- I suppose seen a number of uh, policy challenges come up, and been involved in the process of working out what you know how, how government should respond. Yeah, that's right. I, I think at a state state government level, I've worked in in almost all of the different portfolio portfolio areas, um, everything from environment to human services to economic development. Uh, to community development, uh, regional development—you know, you name it—I've I've, I've worked in it over the over the course of many years, and I think that breadth, um, I guess, keeps me um, keeps me engaged, um, helps me learn and be inspired by new policy areas, and really, I think, equipped me to some extent to write the book as well. Yeah, well, it's certainly an ambitious book and one that uh, covers a whole lot of ground. And I really like the structure of it. You've you've chosen a whole bunch of countries and you've using, used those countries to, uh, I guess, to explore the possibilities uh, within 
individual policy areas, things like climate change or the, uh, you know education, all kinds of things. And we'll come to some of them in a moment. Um, I like the point that you make early on in the book, though, about economics, sometimes called the dismal science. But you say there's been a change in the way economics operates as a discipline, that it's shifted away from being as close to or, or, or akin to a philosophical um, pursuit and is now much more practical. Can you just explain what you mean there? Yeah, well, I think I'm not sure the, the change is complete, but we've certainly – economics for a long time was based on on very complicated models um, built on a whole series of assumptions and you'd uh, simplify the the real world using, using those models to um, compute Compute essentially uh, various outcomes, and and that that was always uh, flawed in one sense because those assumptions meant that it was an over oversimplification of of what is a complex real world situation. What we what we've increasingly been seeing in recent years is a move towards empiricism, the the, the focus on analysing what actually happens in the real world as opposed to what happens inside a an economic model. So we see economists now using uh, things such as natural experiments or or randomised control trials uh, or even lab-based experiments to actually see what happens in practice in the real world to in, inform economic policy. And I think that shift has been, uh, been quite important uh, and it's really the sort of methodology that I tried to use in the book, which is not ask what is the best economic model in theory, but ask which country or which jurisdiction or which place in the world is achieving the best outcomes and work backwards from the outcomes. Uh, so, so uh, and ask ourselves, who, what are they doing uh, in order to achieve those outcomes? Uh, is there a lesson for us to learn from that and, and, and really work, work from that premise of working backwards from outcomes? So it's almost as if we're, we're, there's there's more of an emphasis on on what happened in the past sense uh, or what is happening, I guess, if we put it in the present tense, uh, rather than you know what economic theories say will happen. And you think there was perhaps too much of an emphasis on that in the past, and and it's matured as a discipline now. And we're we're actually looking at how people respond to changing circumstances, how how, how that what what economic impacts those changing circumstances have, whether that be changes in government policy, um, changes in environment or or law or the security situation or whatever it is. These things manifest uh, in you know people acting in certain ways. And economics is now a bit more concerned with understanding that than than just understanding theory. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it is increasingly concerned with that. And if it's not, I think it should be, um, which I guess is really one of the arguments that I make in the book, which is if you don't ask yourself who's getting the best outcomes, uh, then really you're just talking to to your model and, and really the, the actual outcomes in the real world in the end, or what it impact and affect people's lives, and what we should be concerning ourselves with. Yes, yes, a good point. Okay, l- let's go to the to the structure of the book. Why you've uh, gone about it the way you have? I, I mentioned that a moment ago, but if you could just explain what the structure of this book is, uh, you've got uh, what is it, ten countries uh, and a number of issues that you look to expand and uh, examine through that method. Yeah, sure. And whilst I'm v- 
broadly literate in a range of public policy areas, I certainly wouldn't count myself as an expert in all of them. And I think that insight really informs my approach, which was really to starting starting with the the broad high level outcome outcome metrics, say from the World Bank or the OECD or other areas, and asking who's which countries are achieving the best outcomes. And then interv- what I did was interviewed a whole range of experts, cold called people um, from those countries to really get their insights as to what they thought was contributing to the success of those countries, whether that be in climate change or education or health or inequality, uh, gender inequality, a range of different areas. And then drill down into the academic evidence, the, the, the data to really trying to paint a picture and tell a bit of a story that's hopefully a bit engaging about what makes those countries so successful. And clearly, the transferability of policy um, you know, is never perfect. You, it's, it's never the case that you can just pick up a policy from one country and apply it perfectly in another political and cultural and historical context. But what we can do is be, take inspiration from those other ideas, from those other countries, uh, expand our debate and our discussion by having a bigger conversation about what might be possible in a country like Australia. And I think by broadening our horizons and looking more broadly around the world, we can, we can really uh, have some richer, uh, more exciting conversations about just what, we, just what might be possible. Of course, one of the uh, the obvious examples that will spring to mind for people when thinking about uh, big problems, you know, so-called wicked problems, those big problems that countries face that are very, very complex, is climate change. And that's where you start uh, the book with uh, a look at what they're doing in Denmark. Tell us about, is it called Samso Island? Yeah, Samso Island. It's a small rural farming community, quite conservative of uh, about 4,000 people. And 20 years ago, Samso Island won a competition that the Danish government had to find a, a renew. What they wanted to do was create a renewable energy island, a community that, that was that could possibly lead the way and demonstrate that uh, carbon neutrality was possible. And Samso won. They got a little tiny amount of funding to fund a community development coordinator. Uh, and then that person, his name was Soren Hermansen, who I spoke with, went about persuading that community to get on board with a um, to be to really transform their community and w- interestingly what they did was it wasn't positioned so much as a climate change initiative but as a, a local economic development initiative for that community that was seeing an aging and declining population uh, the economic base was going backwards and so investing in things like um, like wind turbines that that all of the community in the end got on board with as part owners or owned by cooperatives um, and investing in biomass boilers that that fired up the uh, the heating in, in the villages in the community really gave that community a, re- a renewed sense of purpose and optimism and and helped them change their perceptions of themselves. And what, what they learnt was that when the community can get on board with a with a, a sense of ownership of the problem and, and the solutions uh, that everyone uh, that addressing a problem that would seem fairly insurmountable became became doable um, because it was uh, was not imposed it was actually driven from the bottom up and and I think the lessons there are not that we don't need government policy but that communities and communities and bottom up policy can sometimes be um, be quite effective as well. 
Yeah, you really need uh, community buy-in. It's sort of almost like the the initiative needs to feel in the community like it's coming from there, and uh, you'll you'll have so much more success if you can get that kind of extensive community buy-in. Can I just read a uh, section of your book that um, uh, explains this situation pretty well? You're talking about that island. You say this very ordinariness is what makes it so remarkable that for the past 20 years, Samso has been a world-leading green energy com- community. All of Samso's electricity comes from the massive community-owned wind turbines, while biomass boilers burning local straw meet 70% of the island's heating needs. Now, that's obviously in a very cold part of the world too. Each of Samso's 3,724 residents now emits an average of negative 3.7 tonnes of greenhouse gas per year. It's a real success story, isn't it? It is. And what it shows that if it can work in that community, that it can work in any community in theory, in in anywhere. Um, Think of all the the small rural communities around Australia – They've got access in many parts of Australia. They've got access to huge wind resources, solar resources, renewable energy opportunities. The same sort of political dynamic of rural, conservative um, farming communities. Um, if it can work in Denmark, it could potentially work here as well. And Denmark is now, of course, one of the world's leaders in in this policy transformation in its uh, performance in terms of driving down emissions. Is it not? Yeah. Over the past couple of decades, per capita emissions in Denmark have come down about 50%. So, they're about half of what they were in the, in the 1990s. Um, it's, it's quite it's, – of all the OECD countries, that's probably – it's close – it's the highest or, or close to highest of reduction. And that's happened at the same time as economic growth in Denmark has been quite strong. It's grown in real terms uh, equivalent to the average of the European – of, of the EU, um, and uh, it's really what it does is it proves the case that you can reduce carbon emissions at the same time as growing the economy. You can decouple economic growth from energy consumption. You can decouple economic growth from increasing carbon emissions. It's that by by understanding and knowing that it is possible in at least one place that can potentially inspire us to think that it might be possible in a country like Australia too. Yes, although we've seen how intractable this problem has been and how easily it has fallen prey to, you know, bitter political divisions. We know it's taken out a number of political leaders, indeed, on both sides of the uh, political divide in Canberra. Um, I'll just run quickly through a couple of the points because uh, that you recommend in terms of lessons that we can take from Denmark. Uh, and I'll do that because it's quite interesting in this policy space, but also because that's what you've tried to do through the book, that is examine these uh, these policy problems or these challenges uh, using international examples and then uh, have some practical suggestions about how we might uh, move forward in unlocking these problems for ourselves. So in the case of this, you say start local. We've just been talking about that, I guess, the idea of having community buy-in. Um, but also you make the point that climate change is a kind of an abstract concept in a sense, and I think that's absolutely right. It's a, it's a temporal concept as well. It's one that is off down the down the track some way and human psychology being what it is some people are quite happy to pretend it's not really a problem at all by virtue of how far off in the future it is so that, an interesting one you say poli- you highlight policy certainty now of course investment certainty has just about been 
impossible in Australia over over the last uh, dozen or so years, thanks to the uh, you know highly polarised politics around this issue. Um, you say that um, uh, um, leadership matters. Of course, leadership is extraordinarily important in all policy challenges, but uh, it's not easy to bring it about when you've got so many divisions. So uh, can I invite you to consider any of those? Yeah, and I, th- I think the question about partisanship in Australia is, is really relevant. In Denmark, uh, climate change almost is, is a non, non-partisan issue. It's it, every major energy agreement that sees um, – that that provides the long-term policy framework for investment into energy is uh, agreed by the opposition so that even if there's a change of government the companies that might be investing in wind turbines or other other renewable electricity uh, or transmission um, they have the policy certainty that both sides of that the policies both sides of of parliament have agreed to the policy framework that it will continue on regardless of who wins the election and that policy certainty enables them to invest with confidence and i think climate change in a lot of ways doesn't have to be and and i, I it really shouldn't be a particularly ideological issue and i think a lot of countries around the world are moving to that moving to that point where it's not it doesn't have to be one of those partisan issues and and this i think this goes back to one of the other themes that runs through this chapter and almost every chapter in the book and that's of trust um Den- denmark is obviously unique in the sense that it has one of the highest trust levels in the world it, it's people trust government people trust each other australia is probably more mid-pack in that regard um but where the opposition and the government can can trust each other and have the ability to work together and people can trust have trust in government um, that enables policy, policy, whether in climate change or in any other areas, to to work much better. And I think we have to jealously um, curate and guard tr- trust. It's not something that we really should be taking for granted in Australia. And everyone, whether in the public service or in political leadership, I think we've got we've got that responsibility to act with integrity, act with, uh, with consistency, uh, to act with, um, to, get, to provide certainty so that, so that that trust can be built and maintained. And one of the other things you've uh, suggested is, uh, that we really need to do is we need, we need to price carbon. Now, all of what you were saying just then is correct. Uh, I agree with. Um, I also agree that pricing carbon seems the most logical way of doing this, allow the market to find the most efficient way of lowering our emissions. That's always been the logic, but we know that's a an incendiary concept, one so incendiary indeed that neither side of politics in Australia is prepared to openly say it anymore. Yeah, but that doesn't have to be the end of it. I mean, even in Denmark, uh, all the experts I spoke to said that the European Union emissions trading regime is imperfect and flawed. Um, getting better, but doesn't deliver all the outcomes that they want. And all the all the advice that the Danes gave me was that the importance of proceeding um, to support investment in renewables needed to happen independent of the, the the policy around around pricing carbon. It was really critical to be subsidising renewables and moving to renewable electricity generation as quickly as possible. And um, 
And so the Danes certainly weren't sitting back and waiting for a, a perfect emissions trading regime either. And there's certainly a lot we can do in the absence of one in Australia. Yes, well, let's uh, not hold our breaths there, but I uh, hope that that is the case. Uh, I'm talking with Andrew Weir, uh, who's author of this uh, wonderful uh, and really very thought-provoking book, Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. We'll see about that, I guess, uh, in uh, as, as time goes by. But uh, we'll just take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, because there's so much in this book, I'd like to touch on a couple of the other policy areas. We can't, of course, go through all of them, uh, but a couple that are particularly interesting, I think, education and democracy itself, how it functions. So quick break and we'll be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, let's talk about education now. Now, I think it's really interesting. You've chosen Singapore uh, to discuss the possibilities for education. Why Singapore? Yeah, Sing- Singapore is fairly consistently topping the rankings in terms of educational outcomes now. And obviously, in the past, a lot of people have talked about Finland as a place we should be looking, but P- Finland now in the latest uh, rankings doesn't even make the top 10 for maths outcomes. And it's actually the East Asian countries such as Singapore that are dominating. We do need to look at, a, look at what they're doing and see how we can learn from them. Uh, the average East Asian, the average Singaporean 15-year-old now is about a year and a half ahead of the average Australian in maths. And a lot of that's down to, uh, I, I guess, a different approach. You say, uh, for example, one of the lessons is rather than invest large sums of money to reduce class sizes, which would yield an uncertain outcome, Singapore has instead opted to focus its attention on teaching. Good teachers are a much more important factor, one Singaporean education expert told you. Yeah, that's right. And teaching is really at the heart of the Singaporean approach. So, in Singapore, new teachers are selected from the top one third of the graduating uh, graduating high school cohort. They're then employed as civil servants from the day they start their teacher training with all of the leave and entitlements that that entails and pay. Um, when they do enter their teaching profession, they're supported intensively with learning and development. They re- every teacher receives 100 hours of paid learning and development every year. And they can do things such as, in addition to training courses, they can, they're even supported to travel the world to go and learn from other jurisdictions. There's multiple pathways so the, the best performing teachers can, can go on to uh, do things as big, such as become a curriculum leader or a uh, or a master teacher, or going to school leadership, so that they can t- 
the top teachers can stay in the classroom and be rewarded appropriately. So teaching is a revered uh, and really important profession in Singapore that really uh, underpins a lot of the success of the Singaporean approach. Yes, and you've uh, very strongly tied that to Singapore's performance as a society and an economy as well, which is, uh, I think, uh, you know, a, a completely, um, it's an understandable link and it's one that sometimes I think is uh, is absent in some of the debates, how you how you actually invest in education and it, it's a, it gives a great uh, return on that investment in terms of productivity and innovation and performance down the track. I might list uh, just uh, the five things that you've advocated in this chapter. Um, you've touched on them a bit, but uh, if you want to make any comments, uh, further comments about them, um, you say invest in early childhood education, a very strong emphasis there on, um, on, on making sure that early childhood education is a critical part, is understood to be a critical part of a child's education overall. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in Singapore, I think, would acknowledge that they've been a little bit behind on that front, but the evidence from around the world and elsewhere uh, around the around the world is that investing in early childhood makes all the difference, not just in education, but in a whole series of other social policy domains. And Singapore is now really doubling down, um, trying to play catch up a little bit in that area of early childhood. And teacher training, you were just talking about that. You say that uh, we should encourage teacher training and that and development and that that should um, really be a focus like making – which I, I imagine it would have a very strong um, impact on the desirability of the profession as well. So not only do you end up with good, better teachers, but you end up with greater competition to be a teacher. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Where, where teaching is a – uh, regarded as a credible, highly sought-after profession for graduates, then then people are competing to to get into teaching. And and while while Singapore the they select from the top one third of the graduating graduating high school high school cohort, they then uh, select according to aptitude, so empathy for students and a desire and a willingness to work with young people, for example, is some of the things that they select for. So they really want people who are both highly capable but also really passionate um, about about becoming a teacher. What about rewarding teachers? Uh, does that need to change, the way teachers, the best teachers are, are uh, recognised and rewarded? Well, certainly teaching needs to be a a career in which you can earn a decent income. Uh, in Singapore, that's it's certainly uh, they pay their teachers well, albeit not the highest in the world. Uh, I think the opportunity to have career paths and progression and able to grow into grow into more senior positions is a really important part of of growing a teaching work, workforce. So that the best teachers have an opportunity to grow into more senior roles to act as mentors and leaders within the school system. That's that's really important. I think structure the way we structure teacher careers is something that's really, really important. And we can learn probably a lot from from the Singaporean approach, I think. And you would you would actually have teachers do that directly, wouldn't you? You were, you're saying that uh, we should actually quite routinely send those uh, high-performing teachers abroad uh, to various places in the world where they can actually watch the way it's being done in those places where things are really working and bring bring that back to Australia. Yeah, the Singaporean approach is to help its teachers learn from the best in the world. So they, regardless of seniority or level, teach 
teachers and bureaucrats are routinely supported to travel around the world many times a year in many instances to go and learn from the best in Finland or Estonia or Australia. And and that approach of learning from the best is is something that can be deployed not just in education but in every portfolio domain. And I think in a country like Australia, we we probably don't do that enough. I think we we certainly in my experience from working in government, we we don't tend to to engage extensively internationally with policy around the world. And there's a, I think a lot to be learnt from a small country in the heart of Asia like Singapore that that routinely adopts that approach of learning from and integrating the best ideas in the world. Now, this is Democracy Sausage, of course, so I'm particularly interested in uh, what you've uh, had to say in your book about democracy, about how it's functioning and about how we can improve its function. Um, I'm fascinated that you've picked Indonesia here as as the model. It's one of the world's younger democracies. That's certainly the case, but it's also one that has its own uh, very extensive challenges within it. Uh, talk to me about why you've chosen Indonesia. Indonesia has obviously got its challenges. It's and many in the uh, Australian Indonesia sort of community, academic community that I spoke to, are really concerned about potential democratic regression in Indonesia in recent times and and potentially into the future. But I think when you stand back and look at the long view. Um, when you look at where Indonesia has come from over the past couple of decades from the Suharto regime, Indonesia has really sustained a democratic transformation. It is absolutely an imperfect democracy, but it is still a democracy nonetheless, and it has sustained that over a couple of couple of decades. And uh, that's actually quite rare around the world that a democratic trans- transition has been able to be sustained. Uh, and, then, and in a country as complex and, uh, and and dispersed as Indonesia, that's quite a remarkable feat. And the further I dug into Indonesia, the, the, the thing that struck me was, strangely, there are actually things that a country like Australia can learn from Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia, for example, has an anti-corruption commission that, in, that investigates politicians, yet we don't have one of those in Australia at the federal level. Um, and and quite and and so the fact that we you know in in some senses we um we are behind where a country like indonesia is in terms of democracy is is quite quite a, a provocative uh insight i think well certainly the fact that we need some level of democratic renewal i think is uh, is obvious to anyone who watches politics and watches politics not just in this country but in other places around the world also that would call themselves long established democracies there is a declining level of trust and a sense of um of the old uh, the old structures failing to really um live up to their promise and indeed you know showing they're not really fit for purpose in terms of dealing with some of the very problems you've outlined in this book and that we're all very well aware of, climate change and education and health and so forth. You've chosen another Asian country to talk about health, um, that that being Korea or, or South Korea as it's often referred to. That obviously is a, a shining example in health and we're seeing that uh, even in this COVID crisis, we're seeing uh, that uh, the Korean health system has performed very well. Um, explain about that if you would. 
South Korea is quite an impressive story. I mean, it, obviously, after the Korean War, uh, life expectancy in Korea was was in the, in the 50s. Uh, now, very soon, Korean women will live to over 90 and will have the longest life expectancy in the world. And Korea manages to do have an incredible healthcare system with with um, a universal healthcare system. It's not too dissimilar to Australia. Um, really significant use of some of the best technology in the world with a bit of a startup mindset and a bit of agility and the ability to respond quickly with technology. Um, and we've seen that a little bit in the COVID-19 response. Uh, some incredible hospitals and healthcare. Three of the top 10 hospitals in the world are in Seoul. Um, but the, the interesting thing about Korea, I think, and, and, the, and the insights for a country like Australia are, are really quite profound, is that if you want to improve the healthcare outcomes and the life expectancies of a population, that the healthcare system alone won't do it. In, in highly developed countries like South Korea and Australia, the healthcare system alone won't improve healthcare outcomes and life expectancy alone. And the reason for that is the biggest, the biggest threats to life expectancy and health outcomes are actually non-communicable diseases, obesity, diabetes, leading to heart disease and stroke. And, and, and they're the things that are cutting short people's lives in, in, to a large extent. And those things are a function of diet and lifestyle, effectively uh, self-inflicted in a lot of ways. And, and so in having um, an amazing healthcare system on its own isn't enough actually need uh, transformation in in terms of the way people live their lives and so Korea is one of the in that unique sweet spot where it's got the world's one of the world's best healthcare systems coupled with a traditional diet so people are eating uh, coupled with a tradi- yeah traditional diet um, people are eating traditional yeah. Korean diets with full of uh, full of vegetables very low in fat and sugar. Um, so consequently, obesity is at a very low level, and 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 that's leading to very low levels of of uh, of diabetes and and heart disease and stroke, etc. So, and and the Korean government's really investing in that by by providing traditional Korean lunches to students, to training students in how to prepare traditional Korean food to try and maintain that and hold back the tide of of fast food and uh, and highly processed food that that has afflicted countries like Australia and the US, which has actually led to, for example, life expectancy in the US has gone backwards over the last 10 years, largely due to those diet and lifestyle factors. Yes, it's a really interesting point. And I think a, a, an, a, an aspect of it, a, a key aspect of this uh, whole debate really is to uh, emphasize the point you make in the book that it doesn't just have to be about money, that in fact uh, South Korea spends less in terms of its overall budget, its overall GDP on health than many of the other countries, even though it's getting these better outcomes. I think uh, you say it's um, 8.1% of gross domestic product it spends on healthcare. That compares with 9.3% for Australia and 16.9% for the US. So the Americans are spending vastly more on the health system and getting much poorer outcomes. Mm, yeah, it's quite it's quite tragic, really. The the in the US they're spending uh, a lot of money on on a lot of uh, very expensive pharmaceuticals and high cost treatments, uh, but but really suffering from inequality uh, that's driving a lot of um, non communicable disease development. Uh, obviously, with uh, 
with homicide, etc. So, life expectancy in the US now is actually lower than in Puerto Rico and Cuba, um, and will and will soon soon be on some projections lower than in Mexico. That's astonishing. Andrew Weir, it's been a great pleasure talking to you about this book. Uh, There's so much in it. I I strongly recommend that people go out and get a copy of this book called Solved. Uh, It deals with a whole range of interesting problems and has many suggestions as to how we might move forward in unlocking these problems for our society. So thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, Thanks uh, to you, the listener, for um, uh, listening to Democracy Sausage and this extra edition and uh, keep your eye out for the regular Democracy Sausage Sausage coming to you on Monday, where we will indeed be talking, uh, of course, about the COVID-19 crisis. How could you talk about anything else? Um, Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it.